Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 77. If you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, you'll find that on page 488. Uh, the Psalms is typically the center of your Bible. Uh, usually pretty easy to find. We're looking at the entirety of Psalm 77, but I'm just going to start by reading the first uh, nine verses. and um, We'll read the, uh, the rest uh, in just a few minutes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this God's word abides forever. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has, his ang- has he in anger shut up his compassion? So ends the reading of God's word at this point. Let us pray that he would be pleased to minister to us through it. Our gracious and merciful God, we know that you are great and you are greatly to be praised. We long to know you and your attributes, your character and your works, and it is these that you have preserved for us in your word so that each generation might come afresh and behold your grace and your love and your power. And so as we come to your word, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold its treasures. Allow us to gaze upon your beauty and splendor Humble us, encourage us, and strengthen us in Jesus Christ, whom we meet in your word. Amen. You may be seated. It's okay. You could admit it. We all do it. It's natural. It would be hard not to do it. We all shake our heads when we read about the Israelites in the wilderness. We read about their dramatic deliverance from Egypt, how how God brought plague after plague after plague on the Egyptians, but preserved his people, the Israelites. And then we read about the dramatic crossing of the Red Sea, the walking on the dry land, the walls of water on either side, and then the drowning of Pharaoh and his army the elation, the joy, the songs, the declarations of faith. And then comes the next chapter, and they get a little thirsty. And how do they respond? They're convinced that God is against them, that he's brought them out into the wilderness to kill them, that life was 
better in Egypt. And you shake your head and you don't get it. You think they're silly, they're, they're irrational. And you can admit it, you're convinced that if you were there, you wouldn't have doubted. You would have stood strong. You would have done better. But would you? Have you ever done the same thing in your own life? When you see clearly God's provision, His deliverance, His love, and His care, do you not make bold declarations of faith? But when life gets hard, when the crisis comes, when the chips are down, when when your soul grows thirsty... Do you not interpret all of life through that hardship and question God's love? What do you do then? How do you move forward? What hope is there? And that's what Psalm 77 is about. The first thing we need to do is be honest about what it feels like when you seem to be losing ground when it feels like you're going backwards spiritually. And then we need to talk about reality, uh, the good and the bad, the reality of emotions and the power they can exert in our lives. And then finally, we want to see what hope uh, the community, the church, the body of Christ and history can bring, what hope they can bring in the midst of hard times. That's our, that's our plan this morning. Uh, when all is said and done, I hope this will become obvious and clear from this beautiful psalm. In order to move forward sometimes, we first have to go backwards. Sometimes the best way forward is to take a step back and to gain your bearings, to remember where you've been, what's true, so that you can move forward out of that truth. That's what we want to see. Now, of course, that counsel seems counterintuitive to us. If we want to move forwards, we move backwards. We, we've all heard the military types, some of them in this room, the fitness freaks, some of them in this room, saying things like, if you're not moving forwards, you're going backwards. We go, yeah, hoorah. It resonates with us. We like making progress, having that sense of moving forward. We've all heard the motivational speaker types. They say, I never dwell on the past. I'm always looking forward. As if looking behind us is is always detrimental and an impediment. And then when things slow down, when we get stuck, when it feels like we're losing ground, like like we're going backwards, when we're repeating lessons that we thought we've already learned, when we're making the same mistakes we used to make, when that happens, we worry. The reality is, this is how we feel when things are not going in the direction we want, at the pace we want. When life doesn't meet our expectations, we grow concerned, we panic. And we take those feelings and we start to draw conclusions from them about our faith and our relationship with God. We we believe our circumstances are reflections of God's love for us. And when things are good, we feel loved. And when things get hard, 
we question that love. And the first three verses of this psalm are are all about how the psalmist is drained and exhausted and he refuses to be comforted. He, He is faint with sorrow. When he remembers his God, he just moans. He's not unlike that that wilderness generation, unable to remember God's goodness in the midst of his present circumstances. He may have believed it at one point, but now he's interpreting everything through his pain. Whatever fellowship he feels like he once had with God, he he believes is, is gone, or at least has worn thin. His relationship has not progressed the way he thinks it should. It has gone backwards, or worse, it has faded into non-existence. And he feels alone, he feels abandoned, he feels betrayed. And these feelings of exhaustion and abandonment lead to questions in verses 7 through 9. Will God ever show me favor again? Has has he rescinded, has he withdrawn his love for me? Have, Have his promises failed? Has he forgotten how to show me grace and compassion? Do those questions make you uncomfortable? Is it because you hear echoes of those questions in your own heart at times? When life gets hard, when the chips are down, when when the clouds roll in and the storms come, Don't you ask questions like that? We all do. And we all know that they're they're thinly veiled accusations. There's a very thin line between asking if God has forgotten how to love and declaring it to be a fact. And you know what comes next? The guilt the shame, the disappointment with yourself and how weak you feel your faith is. And you feel like you shouldn't be doubting God. You shouldn't be questioning him. You shouldn't be accusing him of wrong. And so you put on a plastic smile. You pretend that all is well. You pretend that you never question his providence. And often the counsel you hear at times like this, if you let somebody in, it goes in one of two directions. The first is, it's okay to be angry with God. Or you hear, it's never okay to be angry with God and you just need to repent. And I really don't think either of those responses is helpful. More to the point, I don't think they understand the model that this psalm gives to us. This is scripture. (laughs) The Holy Spirit has guarded the creation of this psalm so that it would be a fitting song for us to take to our lips and to pray in our hearts when times are hard. Look at the inscription at the top. For the choir master. This is for the people of God to learn to sing together. Think about the implications of that. What it tells us is that it's okay to be honest with God. 
God, uh, we heard in the reading of the law this morning, God is the God of truth. And he's honored by truth. Even when that truth reveals our pride, our sin, our rebellion, or just our confusion and our doubt in our hearts. He's honored when we cry out in honesty. The psalm tells us that he is not afraid of hard questions. Because good questions lead to good answers. We might not always like those answers, but we can't find answers to hard questions if we're unwilling to ask them. If all we do is stuff them down to deny that they're in our hearts. The issue really isn't whether or not it's okay to be angry with God because the reality is there are times when we are angry with God and what matters is what you will do when you are. What do you do when you feel like he has abandoned you? When it feels like you're moving backwards, what does moving forward look like in those times? For one thing, it's helpful to understand emotions because that's what we're dealing with, isn't it? When you're in that place, somebody asks what's going on, what do you say? I'm just really emotional right now. And it's, that's true. It's honest. But sometimes we fall victim to thinking that emotions are bad because they can lead to foolish decisions. Sometimes... Uh, we, we think that really what we want to do is just free ourselves of all the emotions and just sort of be these robotic, objective, you know, droids. But emotions are not bad. They are given to us by God. The goal is not to be detached, robots, unaffected by life's joys and pains. Such would be a denial of our humanity. It would be a, a denial of the very image of God within us. Jesus had no problem weeping at Lazarus's grave. But emotions are powerful. And there are traps that are tied to them. Emotions focus almost exclusively on self, which makes being objective very hard. Emotions are consumed with me. And so other people's experiences at times like that tend to be dismissed their words and their desires becoming irrelevant. We, we refuse to listen to them because they don't know what it's like to be me. And emotions get stuck in the moment. They, they look at our immediate circumstances and they have a hard time seeing anything else as ever being possible. A wife who doesn't feel loved at that moment might say to her husband, you have never loved me because she can't see outside of that moment right then. And any voice that challenges that assessment is silenced. Many of you have heard me say before, emotions can only speak out of your present circumstances and only in the absolute. How you feel right now is how you are convinced you have always felt and it's the only way you ever will feel. That's the power of emotions. 
And you can hear all of this in the first nine verses. They are filled with I, me, my. But that changes as he begins to reflect in in the second half of the psalm. Let's read that, verses 10 through 20. He begins by confessing. He says, Then I said, I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of Yahweh. Yes, I will remember your your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders and have made your might known among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You notice when he meditates on God's history, his past, that that I, that me, that my, that, that dominated the first nine verses is replaced by this corporate sense of we, that, that you did this for your people. What God is there like? Our God, verse th- 13 You've done mighty works. You've made your mighty deeds among, known among the peoples, verse 14. I, I love how one writer puts it, reflecting on this passage. He says, it's not that the self disappears, but the self is repositioned in the community. The psalmist begins to think about himself in light of how God has treated his people through history. The psalmist starts to find comfort when he starts to think of himself not as an isolated island, but as a part of the people of God. It's far easier to believe that God has abandoned you than than to believe he has abandoned someone else. Don't believe me? When things get hard for you, how quick are you to say, maybe God doesn't love me anymore? But when things get hard for a friend... How many of you had said, maybe God doesn't love you anymore? You never say that to somebody else. Those words never come off your lips about somebody else. Only about yourself. We have a hard time believing things for ourselves that we will readily believe for others. When it comes to other people, who are having a hard time, we readily believe that relief will come and all things will make sense in due time. But it is easier to dismiss God's love and faithfulness when it comes to ourselves. And that's incredibly isolating because it means that somewhere in our hearts we believe that we are different and unique. We aren't really part of the people of God. That different rules apply to us than apply to them. And when you remember that you are a part of the people of God, you're forced to remember that you are a part of that group that he loves and he cares for. That the confidence you have for others must therefore also apply to you. 
that you have no more been abandoned than they have. If you truly understand that you are a part of that group, you can't despair for yourself and not have to despair for others, which you're not ready to do. And that's good because you know God hasn't forsaken them. And that can help you to remember that he has not forsaken you. He has not abandoned you. Is it any wonder then that the enemy is always trying to isolate you from the church, pull you away, separate you, isolate you? It's so important to remember that you are a member of God's beloved family. Your place in God's family then becomes an objective reality that challenges the story that your emotions will will try to, to paint for you. And just as remembering the community to which you belong can help you overcome the emphasis on self, remembering uh, God's history can help you with that overemphasis of your present circumstances. You see, we're a lot like the Israelites in the wilderness. We all have that temptation when times get hard to fixate on what is going on right now and to lose sight of the big picture. We all have the temptation when times are hard to fixate on that, to to narrow in on that. And yet much of, of what the Bible is about is about what God has done in history. And there's a reason for that. This is this is we Americans, we have a hard time with that. We are so individualistic. We struggle with this. And and so when we open up the Bible, we immediately want to read it and say, well, how does this apply to me? Now, that's not wrong. We should be asking how the Bible applies to us, how it challenges us, how it encourages us, how it calls us to follow God. But one of the problems is we read something like the crossing of the Red Sea and we think, well, I've never had something like that. The danger then is to forget that their God is your God and their history is your history. Those historical narratives may be calling you back to something God did among his people in the past with the hope of encouraging you and challenging you based on that event. We're supposed to interpret our lives in light of God's word, not God's word in light of our experiences. We need to learn to slow down and listen to the voices of the past. For Psalm 77, the focus is on God's bringing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea. That that event was the defining moment in Israel's past. It was proof positive that that God loved his people and he has the power to deliver them. That he refused to let them remain in slavery. He refused to let them wither without rescue. That he would come to their aid. God's character is clearly seen in what he does and what he has done. And that's why throughout the entire Old Testament, God constantly says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. They were all, that generation was all dead most of the times God said that. 
But he was saying, when I did it to your ancestors, I did it to you. It's no less true for you than it was for them. He's saying, if you want to understand who I am, you need to look back at what I've done for you. If you want to know how I feel about you, look at how I rescued you. You see, sometimes the way forward is going back to the beginning. Because when you're stuck in a moment of confusion, you need to go back to a time of clarity. When you're caught in doubt, you have to go back to a time of confidence. If you're on the wrong road, no matter how far forward you go, you'll still end up in the wrong place. Sometimes you need to go back to where you got on the wrong road and retrace your steps and go back to to where things were right. And when you do this, you'll see God for who he is, not how your emotions feel he is at that moment. Look at verse 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Imagine that moment. Israel's just escaped enslavement to the world's most powerful nation. They're being pursued through the desert by the greatest army in existence. They are untrained. They are unarmed. And they find themselves with their backs against a sea and that great army on the other side. If there's ever a time to believe that they'd been abandoned, that might be it. And then the waters part. And a way is opened up they could never have anticipated. Dry land appears where just a moment before the sea had been. And suddenly there's hope. But the Egyptians, they're pursuing, they're following, they're coming down on that same path between those walls of water. But once the Israelites were safe, on the other side, those walls fall, that path that disappears. And in a moment, the blink of an eye, the greatest army in the world is no more. The people who just moments before thought all was lost now stand safe with no one pursuing them. And that is where they are forced to see the God they serve. When you think all is lost, when you think my love has abandoned you, when you think there's no hope, this is what happens. That's who I am. It was he who opened up the path through the waters, even though his footsteps were unseen. Just because they could not see God did not mean that he was not there with them in the thick of it all, leading them by the hand their assessment of the situation was wrong. There was more going on than the naked eye could see. Was that not the case the day Jesus hung on the cross? To many, what did it look like? Did it look like God was hanging on the cross? Or just a nobody from Nazareth? To the leaders of Israel, he was just a troublemaker, an itinerant, upsetting the status quo. 
For his disciples, it was the worst possible situation, one they could not explain or find justification for. They grew despondent. They questioned God's goodness. They felt abandoned. They thought they were on their own. They, they doubted his love. But when they looked back, what were they forced to see? That it was God walking through the waters of judgment for them, though his footsteps were unseen. Because Jesus came to die for his people. That's where his, his love is best demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt. It is made more clear than the crossing of the Red Sea. And so when you're facing trouble, when your soul is weary, when you refuse to be comforted and you're crying out to God in confusion, you can first be honest with where you're at. Ask your questions. And if you're struggling to put them into words, I've got this great place for you to go. Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9. Open it up. It's okay. It's scripture. It's the Holy Spirit's gift to you for times like that. But don't stop there. Remember what Jesus did for his people. He walked through the waters of judgment in order to open up a way of salvation for his people. He came to the rescue. He endured death in order to save those he loves. Has there ever been a greater demonstration of love and of devotion and of compassion and care? And then remember that you are a part of that people. Now, if you're not a part of that people then I would love nothing more than talk with you about how that can be, how you can become a part of that people. There's a great comfort in knowing that you are included in the brotherhood of the redeemed, to know that you are a member of God's family, that you belong to the beloved community for which Christ died. I think that is one of the reasons why God has us come to his table each week. When your heart cries out, God, do you love me? He responds, come, dine at my table. And when you say, but how do I know it's for me? He responds, it's a family table and you are part of my family whom I love. And our emotions, they'll play tricks on us. They'll try to convince us of things that aren't true. And the Lord's Supper is meant to place a very clear line in the sand. The test for coming to this table is not, do you feel loved today? The test is, have you cried out for mercy? Do you belong to his church? Are you a part of his people? And this is so that your emotions don't play havoc with you, convincing you one week that you're okay and the next week you're not. Convincing you one week that God loves you and that's irrefutable and the next week it's been refuted. Emotions change, but God doesn't. Circumstances come and go, but but God remains steadfast and true. And his love can no more be taken away than history can unhappen. The Lord's Supper reminds you of the community to which you belong. and, And it takes your eyes off yourself back to the cross of Jesus Christ where that love was made visible.
What a gift. What God is great like our God. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, this gift to us this morning. Please join me in prayer. Our God, you know us. You know our hearts, you know our thoughts, you know our questions, and you know our accusations. Teach us to be honest, to admit when we're angry, when we're confused, when we're hurt. But never let us stop there. Teach us to search for answers in your truth. For there alone is hope. There alone is peace. There alone is life. Teach us to pray boldly, to ask the hard questions and to find the hard answers. We praise you that you don't fear our emotions, our honesty, and our confusion. We thank you that we are not alone but belong to your beloved family. We thank you that you have made your love visible on the cross of Calvary. Give us eyes to see your unseen footprints through history, that in them we might see your love. Amen.